electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Tom, thank you very much. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson in studio today, in for Kelly Evans today. Well, we expected the worst, but seeing it in black and white still gives you pause. A record 20.5 million jobs lost in April and an unemployment rate at levels not seen in decades. The market's not looking in the rearview mirror, however. This week, the Dow is up 2%, the S&P more than 3%, and the Nasdaq more than 5%. Stocks are heading higher as investors focus on the prospects of the economy reopening over the next few months. We'll speak with the Labor Secretary, Eugene Scalia, about all of it. But first, let's get more on the markets with my friend, Bob Pisani. Bob. Tyler, always good to see you. Uh, it, the numbers were terrible, and yet the market is choosing to believe a narrative that the reopening is going to go fairly smoothly. That's why we're up, and I know it makes a lot of people crazy with the terrible uh, job numbers that we're seeing. Uh, we are right near the highs for the day. In fact, we're right near the highs for the week right now. And this is a powerful rally, five to one, advancing to declining stocks. Let me show you the S&P 500 because we're on the verge of breaking out. I told you we've been in a range for a while now. 29.39, that's the old April 29th close. We're not above that yet, but we're approaching that. That, then we get all the way back into March in terms of getting higher than that. So keep an eye on what we're doing the last few days. And I said there's a fight over the reopening narrative. Is it going well or is it not going well? Today, the market is choosing to believe that the reopening narrative is going well. So here's the stuff that gets killed when that story doesn't work. Hertz, Wynn, United, Royal Caribbean, they're all up today. None of these are breaking out of anything, but they're up on the belief that the reopening is going to go fine. Uh, I went, mentioned stay-at-home stuff is continuing. Long-term, people are buying into the stay-at-home story. And I don't just mean Amazon. I'm, look, look, Stitch Fix and Stitch Fix and Match Group and eBay and Snap and Twitter. Long-term, these are what people are playing around with right now. And that sort of makes some sense to me. But don't kid yourself. We've said it all week. It's really mega caps. Google, Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, Amazon, all of them up. Four to five percent this week. And as I've said many times, guys, when they're up four or five percent, the market's going to be up regardless of what the rest of them are doing. Back to you. All right, Bob. Thank you very much. Have a great weekend. Bob Pisani. Let's take a closer look now at today's historic jobs report and not in a good way. Steve Leisman for more. Hi, Steve. Tyler, yeah, the coronavirus economic shutdown causing an historic 20.5 million job losses in America as well as a post-war 14.7% high in the unemployment rate. More importantly, though, sparking an immediate debate as to whether or not this is the bottom of the abyss or do we have further yet to go down? I'll show you some data that argues both ways here. First, the top line numbers, 20.5 million losses, 14.7% unemployment rate. But look at the average hourly earnings, up 4.7%. That's unheard of. Why? because a lot of low-income workers were among the first to lose their jobs in this particular round of massive round of firings. Many of them, some of them, 6.4 million, dropped out of the workforce. That's not a good sign for coming back if they've dropped out. On the other hand, Goldman Sachs pointing out this temporary layoffs at 18 million 
when there are a lot of temporary layoffs, which means people think they're going to be called back to their jobs, those tend to be quicker labor market rebounds. Looking at it by sector, exactly where you would expect the pain to be felt. Leisure hospitality, 7.7 million. Education health, 2.5 million. Retailers pummeled at 2.1 million. And manufacturing's 1.3 million jobs lost. Some of the commentary we got from BMO, they're calling it the jobs report from hell. John Riding, however, says we wouldn't be surprised to see a big employment bounce in May. That's per partially because of the reopenings that Bob Bassani was talking about. However, Ian Shepherdson says catastrophe enumerated is what he called the report. We expect a further 10 to 12 million net drop in payrolls in May. Just finally, Joe Buswellis from RSM says the first cut at estimating the damage to the U.S. labor market understates the true shock the public is absorbing. Some facts from the report that we're able to glean here. Hispanics among the hardest hit here with the, the highest unemployment rate by race there, 18.9% or by ethnic group, that is. That's up 12 points. Women hit harder than men. And Tyler, I was able to find one area of job growth. Couriers and messengers up 1,800 jobs. That's just amazing. Uh, Steve, thank you very much. Steve Leisman reporting for us today. The numbers, uh, as he detailed and as you have probably been uh, watching all morning, are quite grim. Uh, but one positive sign could be this. 78% of the lost jobs, as Steve Rasp referenced, are temporary layoffs or furloughs. Joining me now with more on the numbers and the road to recovery is Labor Secretary Eugene Scalia. Uh, Mr. Secretary, welcome. Good to have you with us. We will get to those furlough numbers, which are very important, a uh, very important uh, part of this. But first, I think the basic question most Americans want to know is, is this the worst we're going to see? Well, it's, it's bad, first of all. Uh, these are very difficult numbers for us to see, and this is a, just an exceptionally difficult period for the American people, for workers, for their families. These numbers reflect it. These numbers uh, confirm what we knew uh, about the challenges we're facing as we uh, deal with the virus as we have. In terms of the road ahead, very fluid. Uh, we know that there were even more job losses later in April, early in May, but we now know that uh, 30 states are in the process of reopening and people are going back to work. Uh, so uh, there uh, is a, a path ahead that's out of it, out of, uh, a path out of this. We know what that path is, and, and we've started down that path, but it's critical that we do so safely. As we look at these job losses piling up, maybe, just maybe if we're lucky, there won't be another month with 20 million job losses. But that doesn't mean necessarily, does it, Mr. Secretary, that the unemployment rate couldn't bump up beyond this 14.7 percent and even bump up considerably. It, it, it could go up. There are ways of looking at this data where uh, the numbers, the real number is uh, higher th than the 14.7%. Uh, but uh, I think what's critical here is that these numbers tell a very different story than the kind of numbers that uh, we've looked at in the past during a difficult economic period. First of all, because this was uh, a choice we had to make to uh, idle the economy to beat the virus. We came into this by a very different route. That's why uh, we see millions of jobs suddenly uh, 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 vacant. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I think analogizing to past uh, economic challenges is not going to work so well here. And I do have this one chart. We talked about the temporary jobs. Uh, this is the page in our jobs report today that most leaped out to me. I think your producer has it. And the red line in this chart is the temporary uh, unemployed. 
nearly 90 percent of the uh, unemployed uh, this past month believed that their, their loss was temporary. The challenge to us now is to is to make good on that expectation of the Americans who are out of work to Boy, you can safely say, put them back. in the You workplace. can say that again, because if, if people are and that is an amazing hockey stick kind of chart there, as you see people who self-describe as being furloughed, they expect to go back to work. But there is no guarantee there, is there, Mr. Secretary, that those people who self-identify as having been furloughed will be brought back to work. I I raised the following uh, from a a restaurateur uh, who says that he has been able to reopen nearly 200 restaurants in 10 different states. They are operating at about 25 percent of capacity. He sees that people just aren't coming back. They're still gun-shy about going out. And if those customers don't come back, a lot of those furloughed workers in the hospitality industry may be permanently unemployed, right? Well, this is why, as we uh, enter the reopening, we need to do so safely. Uh, That's been important to us at the Labor Department to assure safe workplaces. But, yeah, customers uh, want things to be safe, too. I think if we do this reopening correctly, people will gain confidence. They'll be coming back. We know some of these jobs will come back very quickly. We lost 1.4 million uh, positions in healthcare last month. But we know uh, that those jobs will come back. They have to come back. Uh, and so I think a lot of these jobs that are shown as lost jobs are jobs that are there. They're waiting. Uh, and the task now is to safely bring people back. Uh, the president uh, had uh, us in a position where the economy was just roaring uh, through uh, February. And so we know the policies to get us there. And what we want to do now is safely bring people back to work, keep those policies in place of uh, the tax cuts we had, a reasonable approach toward regulation, and get that economy humming again. So much to discuss here, and I'm really enjoying the conversation. Honestly, I really am. Uh, Obviously, coming back jobs in in, in the medical profession is one thing. Coming back in hospitality is going to be another. It'll Uh, take longer. It it, it will take longer. We we have to. But but let's pray uh, uh, that 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 chart is right and that those furloughed workers actually are uh, going to come back to work. Let me cover a couple of things, because you talked about bringing workers back safely. Uh, Just a quick note here. Earlier this week, you and AFL-CIO chief Mr. Trumpka uh, exchanged uh, some tart um, uh, communications over his request that OSHA extend some warnings or some prescriptions having to do with airborne risks in the workplace. Could you tell us why you responded the way you did to Mr. Trumpka and why you disagree with what he is calling for? Uh, OSHA, which is the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, it's part of the Labor Department, has been focused on COVID-19 in the workplace extremely early on, providing extensive guidance. I think we have nearly 20 different documents out now uh, providing guidance, very focused now on safe reopening in a variety of industries. We also have enforcement tools that if we have to, we'll use uh, in the case of companies that aren't keeping their workers safe. Very important to us. Uh, uh, President Trump and I have a disagreement about uh, the exact means to, uh, to proceed here. We think the uh, plan we're using, guidance, enforcement if we need to, is the right approach. I think what's a mistake is there's some people out there, former Obama administration people, saying OSHA isn't doing uh, anything. That's just flatly untrue. OSHA uh, staff are working extremely hard to keep our workers safe. 
American people need to know that. So do American business owners. They need to know how seriously we're taking this. Along the same lines as we talk about reopening the economy, earlier this week, uh, the administration sent back basically for further review some guidelines that have been promulgated by the Centers for Disease Control. Uh, and, and the reason they were sent back for further reviews is they were regarded by some, I gather, as overly prescriptive. Were you a part of that review decision? And did you see the guidelines? And what did you think of them? Uh, I'm not sure exactly what particular document is, is being referred to there. Obviously, there are uh, documents being passed among agencies for review uh, all the time. That's a, an essential and uh, healthy process to make sure that all the different perspectives that bear on uh, a safe reopening are, are, are considered. So I think you'll continue to see uh, important documents coming out from OSHA, uh, from the Labor Department and from the CDC uh, on how we safely reopen. Uh, two weeks ago, we cooperated with the CDC in putting out these important guidelines, for example, on how to make workers in the meatpacking plants. So let me, let, me be, let me make sure I'm understanding here because I don't want to get confused. You're not certain which CDC guidelines I'm referring to and, and you weren't part of the decision to send them back or to stall those, uh, those guidelines in any way. I see a variety of documents. I've seen a variety of documents that included CDC. Uh, not my job uh, to comment on particular rumors of leaked documents right. and the like, but there's a, there's a healthy process there to make sure that we uh, communicate, uh, communicate just rightly and, uh, to the American And people. finally, Mr. Secretary, two questions that are, that are, I guess, very related. What happens when the PPP money ends? It's supposed to be paid out by uh, June 30th. And at that point, uh, what happens, number one? Number two, and this is one of some controversy, I have a niece who works in radiology in hospitals out on Long Island, and she says that she's still working, but she is earning a lot less than people who were laid off and furloughed and are collecting unemployment benefits, including the $600 federal supplement. There is not an inducement for them to come back to work. Is that a problem? And, And if not, why not? The president and Congress acted so quickly to provide relief to American workers during this uh, pause in our economy. PPP, the Paycheck Protection Program, as you know, was one part of that. I think it's been an enormous uh, success uh, with, uh, I believe, four million loans now made through that program, tens of millions of uh, workers getting the benefit of it. Uh, We'll see where we are uh, as uh, the end of June approaches. I think we will have made Uh, significant headway in the reopening by then. Uh, The second issue you raise with respect to the unemployment benefit, very important to the president to provide that uh, uh, extra $600 a week in unemployment payments for people who are are having to leave the workplace for the national health right now. Uh, But it's important for people to understand that if there's a job available for you, uh, then that benefit uh, is no longer available. You can't quit a job in order to get unemployment. And Similarly, as we reopen and uh, safe and healthy workplaces are there, uh, we want people back in those workplaces. In other words, you can't refuse to go back to work if the job becomes available to you and retain that $600 benefit. That's right. If that's a if that's a job that you can go back to and, of course, go back to safely, then you can't remain on unemployment insurance. We've discussed that with the states that administer these programs. They understand the importance of the integrity of this program and also of uh, bringing uh, Americans back to work. And our inspector general at the Labor Department will also 
uh, be looking into whether uh, that aspect of the program is misused. But I am sure you can see why some employers are concerned that there is a disincentive to return to work because the unemployment benefit pays them more, for example, in many hospitality industry jobs uh, than they would have made on the job. Uh, That does happen in some cases, and it it is an issue to keep an eye on. Uh, Totally understood. We are focused on it. Uh, We are uh, helping the states focus on it. Uh, But again, uh, it's uh, so important also to be providing that safety net uh, to workers right now. Mr. Secretary, we thank you for your time. We appreciate your efforts today uh, on a day that we will all remember, and I'm sure you will too. Thank you very much. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. Eugene Scalia is the Secretary of Labor. We have some breaking news in the oil patch. The rig counts dropping to historic lows. Dom Chu has the numbers. Dom? Our historic lows, like you said, for those rig counts. Total rig counts in the U.S. with oil and gas, according to Baker Hughes this past week, fall by 34 to 374. That breaks the old record set back in September, or historically. Oil, on the other hand, down 33 rigs to 292. That's the lowest since September of 2009. Nat gas rigs down one overall. This is, by the way, Tyler, the eighth straight week of oil rig drops. It's certainly putting some pressure on prices to the upside, perhaps, as you can see there, WTI crude and Brent both up on the day. Tyler, back over to you. All right, Dom, thank you very much. And coming up, stocks are surging amid historic job losses. If investors aren't worried about today's report, then what factors are they looking at to make decisions? That is next. Plus, from who's hiring for which jobs and where in the country. The CEO of Career Builder will join us with the trends she's seeing. And amid meat shortages and supply chain concerns, plant-based meat has been flying off the shelves. The CEO of Impossible Foods will join us for an exclusive interview on what he sees in store for his company and industry. We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back, everybody. Stocks posting strong gains despite the jaw-dropping loss of jobs in April. Noted market watcher Jeremy Siegel explained why he thinks it is happening earlier on Squawk Box. I've been following less these announcements that we've been getting because it's the rearview mirror. Uh, You know, when I get up in the morning, actually, I check all the virus data. That, to me, more informs what what is going to happen in the future than getting some historical report on how tragic uh, this uh, virus has affected our economy. I do think that the March low is definitely going to be the low. And here with reaction is Ryan Dietrich. He's senior market strategist at LPL Financial and Rich Weiss, chief investment officer over multi-asset strategies at American Century Investments. Welcome to both of you. Rich, you say that equities are an especially risky proposition right now. Why? Well, I... Basically, valuations are a crapshoot. You know, earnings estimates right now we're shooting in the dark, so it's very difficult to tell uh, at a stock-by-stock level or even at the market level 
um, what we're buying right now. The, the better values are in other markets, fixed income, potentially REITs, et cetera. But right now for equities, it's a crapshoot because essentially you're betting uh, on the coronavirus. The path and trajectory of the coronavirus is going to be critical. It's intimately intertwined with the recovery uh, in this particular economic cycle and therefore corporate earnings. So unless you're an epidemiologist, um, I'd be real careful about picking stocks in here. Let me get your quick thought on something that I don't know whether you heard uh, on the um, uh, Jeremy Siegel interview earlier today. He said not necessarily in the short term. You said fixed income is an area that you think uh, offers some attractiveness right now. He said not necessarily in the short term, but in the long term, mark my word, we, the, the bull market for bonds is over, period. It is going, the interest rates ultimately are going to go up. Inflation is going to go up. And that is partly because of all the liquidity that's been put into the system. You agree or disagree? Well, I, interest rates still can go down. So I guess I'd have to disagree. And even with interest rates going up, even with inflation potentially going up, which I wouldn't argue with, there are still segments of the fixed income market uh, which can be very profitable due to price dislocations, uh, mispricing. We have tips for inflation-protected securities. I, you know, there are all sorts of way to profit in the fixed income right. market, even with rising interest rates and inflation. Ryan, let me let me turn to you. The market today, uh, um, not exactly cheering. I, I think it's too strong a word. The the unemployment right. report. Nobody cheers those kinds of numbers because those are are real incomes and real jobs that are lost. But the market does seem to be looking forward, not backward. Right. No, no doubt, Tyler. You know, first off, thanks for having me back. I was on with you guys, you know, in early April, in the middle of April, and said, listen, the market's a forward-looking mechanism. We've got all this stimulus. The economy is in a terrible recession, but stocks are telling us better times could be ahead. And that's exactly kind of what's happened with this massive rally. You know, yes, the headlines, it's terrible, 20, over 20 million people losing their jobs. Yesterday, we had over 317,000 tests of COVID-19. That's 55% more than the week before. OK, the more testing we have, the better off we're all going to be. And the fact that that is happening almost exponentially is one you know, small sliver, maybe why the market is optimistic about this. But I agree with Rich. Right. I mean, again, I came on with you guys for a while saying stocks are going higher in the very near term. We're a little more cautious, up 31 percent from those lows. We're in the terrible dreaded sell in May go away. Now, you know, I am aware <laughs> all years are a little different. But look at last year, T tremendous year last year. Yet May and June were a little troublesome. So these next couple months after this rally, we think for more tactical investors, maybe there could be a better uh, pitch to swing out here soon. And NASDAQ positive for the year. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't, if you'd asked me that four weeks ago, I would have said impossible. But, it, but it's happened. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Have a great weekend. Stay safe. We appreciate your time today, Ryan and Rich. And coming up, this device just got the go-ahead from the FDA to be used in the fight against coronavirus. We'll hear from the CEO of the company that makes it live with how it works ahead. Plus, the path forward for retail. Forget in-store experiences. It's simply about getting people back into the store and comfortable, both customers and workers. We look at the challenges ahead for that industry, and they are not insignificant. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. 
FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane. All right, welcome back now to the uh, very latest. Uh, we go to Sue uh, Herrera on the latest on the coronavirus. Hi, Sue. Hello, Ty. Good afternoon, everyone. Here's what we know at this hour. One of Vice President Mike Pence's staff members has tested positive for the coronavirus. Just yesterday, the vice president was criticized for not wearing a mask while delivering protective equipment to a Virginian nursing home. This is the second person who was part of the White House team to be diagnosed with the virus. New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo striking a more optimistic tone today, saying that state is no longer playing catch-up with the virus. We're finally ahead of this virus, right? For so long we were playing catch-up. We have the beast on the run, there's no doubt about that. We haven't killed the beast, uh, but we are, we're ahead of it. And right now, New Jersey Governor Murphy is briefing the press. We'll bring you the latest on that a little bit later today. You can get more on our coronavirus coverage by heading to CNBC.com. Ty, back to you. Hey, Sue, it's great to see you almost in person. I know, right? We're socially distancing. We're socially distancing. At least distanced. we're at the same studio. Yeah, nice to be back uh, in the same room. It's great to Appreciate see you. Appreciate it, Sue Herrera. All right, uh, our next guest's company just received an emergency use authorization from the FDA this week for its product to be used in the monitoring of patients with COVID-19. And here to explain what it is and how it works is Peter Van Auer. He's the CEO of Vital Connect. Peter, welcome. Good to have you with us. Tell us about your product, which is a monitoring patch uh, that can tell remotely lots of things about, among other things, my heart. Sure, sure. Tyler, thanks for having me, and it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, first and foremost, we were, star- we were a Silicon Valley firm where technology meets medical device. And really, since 2011, we have been inventing a biosensor that ultimately takes the observation capabilities of an ICU, and we miniaturize it down to a biosensor about the size of a dime. And this dime-sized biosensor is housed in a patch, which is affixed upon a patient's body over their heart. And therefore, we can monitor these patients remotely uh, back to a command center anywhere in the world. So essentially what we're able to do is quarantine COVID-19 patients safely away from healthcare providers and other members of society that are not COVID-19 positive, but provide them with the observational care that they would otherwise receive in the hospital, ensuring that we're watching for signs and symptoms of deterioration. And if those signs and symptoms accelerate to the point where they need hospitalization, we can quickly get them to the hospital and get them the care that they need. So this is not for a hospital setting. This is for people who are outside of a hospital. How does it communicate back and, and, who, and who receives the, the notice that there may be a problem, uh, an atrial fibrillation or something like that? Does it go through my cell phone or what? Sure. So the, uh, the data is collected at the biosensor on the patch. It is sent to a relay 
which is either a tablet or a, a cell phone, Samsung uh, tablet or phone. And that information is sent to a cloud, an Amazon protected cloud. From that cloud, we can provide the access through a website, a secure URL, where any healthcare provider can access that information either from the hospital, the comfort of the physician's office, or really anywhere in the world that they are as long as they have a PC. So if I were having some kind of cardiac episode, that would show up on a provider or a monitor, a monitoring systems a device at the other end, and they could uh, either call you or call 911 if, if the circumstances warranted it. This, I would gather, is of particular interest for those individuals who have been or are being treated with the hydrochloroquine or chloroquine, which is the anti-malarial drug, uh, of, that is believed by some to uh, have some usefulness here, but also comes with some coronary risk. Am I right on That's that? Right. That's right. So the reason we received the, emer- the emergency use authorization is for two reasons. Uh, number one, we are a remote patient monitoring technology that has the ability to monitor temperature. We have a built-in thermometer. Number two, the patient's respiratory rate. We all know that COVID-19 is largely a, a respiratory virus. And thirdly, the important SpO2, which is the measurement of the level of oxygen in a patient's bloodstream. So we can measure the signs and symptoms of COVID-19. However, we all know that hydroxychloroquine is a, is a well-used drug uh, throughout the United States. And what the side effect of hydroxychloroquine happens to have is what's known as a prolonged QT interval. That's mm-hmm. a fancy name for an irregular heartbeat. And many patients that are given this drug are, are at risk for a serious uh, irregular heartbeat that could be fatal. Mm-hmm. So we're the only technology available in the medical space that has the ability to monitor the signs and symptoms of COVID-19 and simultaneously monitor for a lethal arrhythmia or irregular heartbeat that hydroxychloroquine or other types of drugs uh, that is used to reduce the signs and yeah. symptoms of COVID-19 could right. put a patient at risk for it. Peter, thank you for the explanation. Good luck with the product, and uh, thank you for your part in fighting this uh, pandemic. We appreciate it. Peter Van Auer uh, with thank us you today. So much. You bet. All righty, coming up, Americans are asking, where's the fake beef? Plant-based meat has started flying off the shelves as the U.S. faces, yes, a meat shortage. We will talk to the CEO of Impossible Foods about that one next. See you in a minute. All right, welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Let's get a check on the markets and some of today's big movers with Dom Chu. Hi, Dom. All right, so Tyler, the Dow, the S&P, and NASDAQ, each up around 1.5% or so. And at the high, the Dow was up just around 390 points, the S&P up around 43. Now, at its high points, those sector gains are being led by energy, industrials, and consumer staples. As you can see here, Real estate, technology, and healthcare are the real laggards. Now, as for the stocks on the move, check out what's happening with shares of Uber right now, which are higher after the ride-sharing company reported mixed results with a wider-than-expected loss, but better-than-expected total revenues driven by strength in its Uber Eats food delivery service. Shares of Roku, meanwhile, lower. You can see they're down by 6% after a big rally in that stock over the medium term after the streaming video device maker reported profits that matched estimates on better-than-expected sales. Average revenue per user jumped 28% over the same time last year. And we're going to end on shares of Disney, which are higher, helped along by news that it will reopen its Shanghai China Disneyland Park on Monday 
to a sold-out crowd, albeit one Tyler that is capped at 30% of total park capacity. Still, some optimism about parks reopening for Disney. Back over to you. A hopeful sign there, Dom. Thank you. Uh, Before the coronavirus pandemic, retailers were spending big bucks to create in-store experiences. Now they're struggling to get both customers and workers back in the store at all. Courtney Reagan joins us now with a look at the path forward for retail and its new paradigm. Courtney, I think it's no exaggeration to say that the experience economy has got a long, tough road ahead of it. Yeah. I mean, I think we can kind of forget about all of that investment in the in-store experience. Retail's new job is to convince shoppers it's safe to come inside, make sure to manage their fear, and, oh, while they're there, enforce all these new policies, by the way. So surveys do show a pretty high level of fear among consumers about in-store shopping. Essential retailers report shoppers are making quicker, fewer, consolidated trips. Now, Kohl's is adding a greeter to welcome back shoppers that will be wearing a mask and gloves, wiping down carts. Macy's Kohl's Gap, among those asking workers to hold tried on and return merchandise for 24 to 48 hours. Employees are also asked to police social distancing. There's plexiglass separating workers and shoppers at checkout. Macy's told me, quote, so far everyone is adjusting well, and its survey work shows that customers feel confident in the new health and safety standards. But Tyler, retailers, retail employees didn't take on these jobs to sort of be in-store police and to enforce public safety measures. This is a big ask for a lot of these workers. All right, Courtney, thank you very much. Courtney Reagan. And for more on the path forward for jobs and what industries and companies are doing the most hiring during the pandemic, I'm joined by Irina Novoselsky, the CEO of Career Builder. Irina, welcome. Good to have you with us. Hi, Charlie. Good to be on. Nice to see you. There are companies that are out there hiring. We know some of them, like the Amazons, the Home Depots, uh, the Walmarts. Are there some unexpected ones out there as well? There's several unexpected ones, especially over the last few weeks that we've been seeing. Um, people talk about healthcare being a big beneficiary of the COVID crisis in the sense that they were keeping jobs and looking for jobs. However, we saw some of the biggest declines in non-critical health care. And for the first time in several weeks, with a lot of the states opening up and easing restrictions, a growth in non-critical care jobs. We're seeing growth in COVID tracers. Uh, you might wonder what that means. It's uh, companies and municipalities and governments that are looking in order to understand if somebody has COVID, who they interacted with, where did they go, and really trace their steps. And then the ones that we've continued to see over the past few weeks really holds steady, surprisingly, has been in the financial space, mortgage brokers, anything having to do with really a lot of the refinancing, buying homes. We've seen a lot of those brokers maintain a healthy appetite for hiring. You know, I see in my note, top industries hiring now include the below, administrative and support and waste management. Second is the retail trade. That would shock almost anybody But I have to guess, Irina, that what's being described there are retail trade among those big companies that are hiring. In other words, the Targets, the Walmarts, the Home Depots, the Amazons. Because if you looked across the broad swath of the retail trade, I just cannot believe that that retailers are are really hiring, unless it's in those states where things are reopening slowly. It's both. Tyler, you hit it on the head. It's the CVSs, the Walmarts, the Targets, the big box retailers have been hiring pretty consistently, along with the logistic companies of truckers and uh, delivery people, uh, food delivery uh, 
workers are continuously been mm -hmm. looking for. However, one of the things that we've seen really change is the unemployment number, of course, shocking with giving away our 10-year job growth in one month. However, one of the things that we've seen from a positive perspective is that with states slowly opening up, for the first time in weeks, we're actually seeing job posting grow in a few states. In Pennsylvania, and Kentucky, and California, in Illinois, it's not positive, obviously, but actually just inching towards less negative. In the U.S., for the first time across the entire country, the rate of decline slowed to about 2%. And the result of that is with these states opening up, exactly like you said, they're looking for retail workers to come in. But Tyler, they're actually having a lot of trouble because of the benefits of unemployment today that a lot of these workers that don't have a work from home option, they're better off financially and from a health perspective to stay out of the labor force and stay on unemployment. Which we talked about just moments ago with the Secretary of Labor. Arena, thank you so much. Arena Novoselsky, uh, the CEO of Career Builder. Appreciate it. And still ahead, Kroger, America's largest supermarket chain, getting in on the fake meat craze and partnering with Impossible Foods as Americans sw snap up these products in the face of a meat shortage. We will talk to the CEO of Impossible about that next. We're going to prove that it is possible to do that. And the canceling of professional sports in the U.S. has left many media outlets without key programming. What the return of sports means for those companies and how they'll look coming up. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Glad you're with us. As Americans uh, are facing meat shortages because of processing plant shutdowns, Kroger recently announcing it will start selling Impossible Foods burgers in 1,700 of its stores. Aditi Roy joins us now with a little bit more on that. Hi, Aditi. Hi, Tyler. Good to see you. Impossible Foods just inked a deal with Kroger to get their burgers into 1,700 of the company's stores, bringing the alt-meat company's products to a total of 2,700 retail stores in the U.S. Those stores, including Safeway, Wegmans, and Fairway, Impossible expects to continue its expansion to more grocers during the pandemic. Impossible Foods still lags behind Beyond Meat, which is at 77,000 restaurants and retailers. Beyond's retail partners include Kroger, Target, Costco, and Walmart. Impossible Foods' largest channel is restaurants. Its products are at 15,000 eateries, many of which, of course, remain shuttered because of the pandemic. Joining us now is Impossible Foods CEO Pat Brown. Pat, great to have you with us. I want to start by talking about these meat shortages. A lot of grocers are rationing those meat products. Is, are you seeing demand for your products going on an uptick? And if so, will it cover the losses you're seeing from the restaurant business? Uh, well, first of all, actually, our restaurant business uh, um, definitely has been hurt by the COVID now outbreak, although um, uh, not as badly as, as uh, the industry at large, in part because a number of our customers have a significant drive-through business. And also, a lot of the restaurants, we've been helping them uh, to um, weather the, the uh, crisis and the, the um, major decline in their sit-down business by helping them actually sell um, our product directly to consumers. And that's the, uh, there are hundreds of them are doing that and quite successfully. But yes, you're right that, that uh, the impact on the restaurant business has been uh, uh, counterbalanced by um, a surge in uh, retail sales for us and, and just in general. 
Your deal with Kroger represent an 18x increase in your retail footprint, but still we mentioned Beyond Meat has partnerships with the likes of Costco, Target, Walmart. What's your plan in going after those big box retailers? I'm sorry, I couldn't hear your, your question. The sound got cut off. Sure, we're, we're um, talking about Beyond Meat already at Target, but, uh, Walmart, and Costco. Uh, What's your planning sure. going after those big box well, retailers? Well, we're, we're actually, uh, we're just getting started. Yes, for sure. Uh, uh, we absolutely uh, are in conversations with um, all of uh, that category of retailer, and we are going to have our expansions over the next several months and throughout the year. We expect that uh, the end of the year that um, we will be in well over 20,000 uh, retail outlets, including um, some of the outlets that you mentioned. All right, Pat Brown, thank you so much with Impossible Foods. Great to have you with us. Tyler, back to you. Aditi, great to see you. Thanks very much. And uh, our thanks to Mr. Brown as well. We are sorry we didn't have a little better audio there. Still ahead, uh, what will the path forward for pro sports look like? Empty stadiums, temperature checks, daily testing for players. Plus, as we head to this quick break, take a look at Jim Cramer's COVID-19 index, which tracks the stocks he sees as market bright spots during these challenging times. It is having a big week, climbing nearly 7%. The exchange will be right back. Welcome back. The NFL announcing its full schedule last night. My son was thrilled, pending that the start of the season can be an on-time start, while the NBA and Major League Baseball are also readying their reopening plans, however, tentatively. Eric Chemi has a look at the path forward for pro sports. Hey, Eric. Hey, Tyler. That's right. Tentatively, that's the key word that you mentioned. The NFL's 2020 schedule released last night. It's based on everything going back to normal by September, if you can believe that. Big matchups featuring star players and marquee teams help kick off the first two weeks of the year. The schedule comes just one day after the NFL issued guidelines for how teams can reopen their facilities to players and employees. Other sports are also getting ready again, or they're trying to get ready. The NBA is starting to allow teams to open their facilities for workouts. And Major League Baseball could have a return-to-play proposal by next week. Baseball teams are encouraging their players to get ready for spring training to restart in June and the season to hopefully start in July. There are signs from across the world that starting to play again is actually doable. Germany's top soccer league will play games again next weekend, and the Korean baseball organization has already begun play in the last week. As far as the NFL goes, if for some reason games cannot start in September, the league could take the first few weeks of missed games and tack them on to the end of the season, pushing back the playoffs and the Super Bowl by a few weeks or even a couple of months. For now, though, NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell has warned team executives not to speak publicly about their own hypothetical schedule ideas. Tyler, back to you. Fascinating how this is all going to roll out. Eric, stay there uh, for a moment. The likes of Disney, Fox, CNBC's parent company Comcast uh, and the NBC network chomping at the bit to get sports programming back on TV. We're hearing about plans now for reopening, obviously, but when and will it really happen? For more, let's bring in George Pond 
Pine. He's the CEO and founder of Bruin Sports Capital. Mr. Pine, welcome. As I mentioned, uh, and Eric will participate here as well, as I mentioned, my son was absolutely thrilled. He was going game by game through the Giants' schedule for, for this year. Do you really think the NFL can open in early September as planned? Well, I think flexibility is a key in all this. Obviously, it's going to be determined by local governments and medical experts. But the NFL, like the rest of the world, wants to get back as soon as it can. And certainly, I think you can see there's a bent-up demand when you look at the draft, the last dance, even esports. People want sports back on TV. No, it's true. And media companies need sports, don't they, Mr. Pine, including uh, our parent uh, NBC Universal, which uh, our number one rated show is Sunday Night Football. But if you look at a company like ESPN, it's not just football. They've got basketball. They've got baseball. They've got uh, college uh, football as well as pro. They need it. Well, a couple, a couple things. 88 of the top 100 programs on television are sporting events. Secondly, it drives ratings, and it's a platform for other programming. Lastly, the advertising revenue is significant, and sports generates affiliate fees for cable operators. So companies like Viacom, Comcast, Disney, Sinclair, AT&T, these companies depend on sports programming to help their business. And it's an important element. That's why they spend billions of dollars for sports rights, because it drives their business. George, can I jump in? I know Commissioner Goodell has told team executives, hey, I don't want you guys giving hypothetical plans. I want to control that message. But you talk to these team owners. What is your sense of what they're thinking? Are we really starting in September or are we going to have to think about a Super Bowl that's much further down into the spring rather than in the winter? I think about this every day, Eric. And I think, you know, I think it'll evolve over time. How the world looks today versus five weeks from now is going to change. I think everybody is trying to build in flexibility and contingency plans and then hoping they can move forward. But anybody in sports has to have a plan A, B, C, and D. And I think with the NFL, you see, they are out of the gates. They've said, hey, we've got four weeks. We could push it back. We could push the Super Bowl back. I'm confident that they're going to do everything they can to play and play every game, but they're going to have uh, various contingencies depending on what the situation is. Yeah, and safety of the participants and the spectators, if there are any, is going to be primary. NFL is sort of a fall sport. College football is another thing. We don't know what's going to happen there. But the two that are most kind of immediate, really the three, I guess, the NHL. But let's talk about the NBA uh, and Major League Baseball. What do you see there? Do you think the NBA is going to resume its season? or And if so, when? Or will they just erase the rest of the regular season and go right to the playoffs? What's going to happen with the NBA and MLB? Well, of course, the NBA is meeting today with the players' union to talk about that. I think you have a couple of questions. One, will they have a regular season? Or two, will they go back to the playoffs? And if so, when? Again, that's being driven by significant television revenue that's in play here. So I think the NBA would like to come back, and uh, time will play out whether they do. On baseball, again, I think, as you, uh, Eric reported, you're looking at June spring training, July possibly playing. They'll need that, That's more of a live gate sport. So there will need to be concessions financially by the players for that to be a viable opportunity. And lastly, the sport I think that has something very interesting is golf, where they're going to uh, come out in mid-June and essentially have full fields for four to eight weeks. So essentially a major tournament every week. I think that will be quite interesting.
Eric, uh, you have any more questions? My last question for George really is thinking about what they said with college football. This is not about the sports deciding when they're going to play. It's when the colleges decide they're going to be open. So we've already seen talk from the Penn State coach, hey, I want to play even if other colleges aren't open. What are your thoughts on the idea that we might see a partial schedule of college football because some of the schools are open and some of the schools are not? It's more complicated with college sports, absolutely, Eric. College sports, though, is so vital to the finances of all athletics. I mean, if you think about it, the 65 teams, it's 50 to $150 million per team that's generating revenue for the football program. That's roughly between 3 and $9 billion. Let's pick 5 to $7 billion. That money is very important. So I think they'll either play, start late, play a full season. I think they'll either be a conference season or they'll look at the spring. But I do think they're going to get college football in. And it's going to be tricky because they play in so many more states and they'll have to work closely with the local governments, which will create scheduling challenges that they're going to have to adapt to. But I know everybody's working hard to get the season in. All right, George, thank you very much. Eric, thank you as well. George Pine, Eric Chemi, we appreciate it. Coming up on Power Lunch, a path forward at how states start the reopening process. We'll talk to the former mayor of New Orleans, and we'll get a live report from California. Plus, what does the future of retail look like? The head of Kimco Realty which owns 400 shopping centers in the U.S., will be here. Melissa Lee joins me for Power Lunch after this short break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.